0: Father God, thank you so much for today and our time here today, and uh, Lord, the beautiful weather outside, and uh, we just thank you and praise you for the many blessings uh, that you give us, and I just pray that you would bless your word to our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin by looking back a little bit, uh, because verse 1 begins, you then, my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that you is emphatic in the Greek. So you, you know, you then be strong. And and when he says then, then he's looking back. So based on what I just said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So then what did he just say? Well, certainly he's just talked about the people from Asia that have defected that have left him, not necessarily defected from the faith, but that have left him. And then he compares that to Anisiphorus, who has not, who sought him out and who took care of him. And so part of what he's saying is, look, be like Anisiphorus and don't be like these other people from Asia who have left me. You then be strong like Anisiphorus, not weak like those others. But I I think there's even more. I mean, I think we can look all throughout chapter one and see how he's He is encouraging the strength in Timothy um, and not Timothy's strength. We'll talk about that in a minute, but the strength that comes from the grace of Christ. So he said he's saying in in effect, since you have had this faith handed down to you from generations, be strong because you have been saved, not by anything you have done, but according to the purpose and grace of God, be strong because Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light be strong. And, and probably most of all, because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline, be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, so this chapter is all about exhortation, exhortation to Christian service, exhortation in Timothy's ministry. And so the first exhortation Paul gives, all of of verses 1 through 13, the first half of this chapter, he is exhorting Timothy. And, And the first thing he says is, be strong. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So he's saying, be strong in God's grace. And pass on the truths uh, that I have taught you. But notice that he is to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He does not say be strong in your own faith. Be strong in yourself. This isn't, as my mother used to say to us occasionally, buck up, bucko. That's not what he's saying. He's not, this is not the sort of typical American, pull yourself up by your own. That's not typical of Americans anymore. Anyway, he's not saying pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, the strength isn't coming from Timothy. It is strength that can only be found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't reside in Timothy without the fact that Christ resides in him. So it is in Christ Jesus, it is the grace of God in Christ that enables Timothy, that enables any of us to be strong. And then he says, what I have have taught you, you teach to people who will teach it to others. Pass it on, a sort of spiritual passing of the baton. And, and this was deeply embedded in Paul, Paul's heart at this point in his life, because he's about ready to die. And he wants to make sure that the word of God doesn't die with him. That Timothy has it in his heart and that he will pass that along to others who are qualified to teach. Pass on what you have learned about Christ to those who are qualified, those who are competent to teach others in order that they might pass it on. So the first two exhortations that Paul gives to Timothy is, be strong in the grace of Christ and pass on what you have learned from me. And he continues in verses three through seven and and he, with, with uh, with a series of images, three images, and he is still, remember, exhorting Timothy through these analogies, if you will. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. So the first image is, is that of, uh, is a military image, is that of a soldier who is willing to endure hardship because he is committed to the cause uh, for which he is fighting. So endure hardship like a good soldier. Um, God will give you the strength to do that. He's just said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then the other thing that Paul is focusing on in these verses is single-mindedness of purpose. Keep your eyes focused on what matters. Don't get turned aside by civilian affairs. Don't get turned aside by things of the world, the things that are not part of your focus as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Don't get involved in things of the world. And then the third sort of picture that we have here, which is very much like a soldier as well, is that of disciplined obedience. Certainly, a good soldier is disciplined. uh, And that is part of... um, of every basic training is taking this 18-year-old kid with fluff in his head and turning him into a disciplined man. And so that is the picture, certainly that was true of Roman soldiers, uh, that is the picture uh, that Paul is trying to leave him with him, that you will obey what you are told to obey. You will be disciplined in obedience, no questions asked. My father grew up not in a military family, had no desire to go into the military until his brother went to K-State And he was uh, not, my father, was not going to get a college education unless he found out a way for it to get paid for. So on a lark, he took a test to get an appointment to West Point. Lo and behold, he got that appointment to West Point. He went to West Point, grew up in the middle of Kansas, knew nothing about the military, wanted to be a pastor or a teacher, but this is how he could get a college education, so why not? Turned into a 31-year career, 34 if you include the time at West Point, your career at, uh, in the Air Force, actually, because there was no Air Force Academy. Actually, there was no Air Force. It was the Army Air Corps. But that doesn't have anything to do with the story. <laughs> he was carrying his grandmother's suitcase that his mother, who was large and in charge, all four-nine of her, uh, told him to take good care of because, after all, it was his grandmother's suitcase. So he gets off the train, and some guy, spitting, gets in his face and says... Drop it, plebe! And so my father set down his grandmother's suitcase because he needed to take care of it. So he set it down. And the guy got in his face again and said, I said, drop it! So this guy is this far from my father's face. He was the light of his mother's world, the youngest of four boys, and he did not understand what was going on, and so he laughed. Now, this was not the appropriate response Uh, as a good soldier, and he never actually told us what happened after that. All he would say was, I never did that again. (laughs) Discipline. Disciplined obedience. You're going to do what you're told to do no matter what. And that's the picture Paul is giving us. The second picture that he gives is, is an athletic one. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown... Unless he competes according to the rules. Now, as today, athletics and athletic competition was very popular in the Roman world. But there was a strict code of honor and code of conduct and rules that you had to follow. And they were not to be broken. And if you broke those rules, you brought shame. Not just on yourself, but on everyone affiliated with you, with your family. Remember the shame culture we talked about last week. And so Paul is saying, keep the rules. Um, Do not bring shame by breaking those rules. Live a life that is above reproach, that is worthy of your calling. Uh, And so uh, that that keeping of the rules was so important, which is a little bit unlike today. Uh, I get so miffed at pitchers who intentionally hit batters, and then you hear them talk about it, and they justify it because we had to let them know that they had to, you know, no, you didn't. That's against the rules to intentionally hit a batter. But they make uh, sort of reasons why that would be okay. Or years ago, this is years and years ago, not that I'm bitter about this at all. (laughs) National championship in college basketball, and there was an inbounds pass, and Georgetown was down by like a point. And the guy intentionally held on. To the uh, the Georgetown player intentionally held on, probably was coached to do so. Sorry if you're a John Thompson fan. So that when they separated, he would fall, and a foul would be called, and they'd get a free throw. That's how they won the national championship. That is not in keeping with the rules. Uh, the guy that wrote one of the commentaries said that he had just read in the paper that day that he was writing this part of the commentary that there was somebody in the New York City Marathon that year that took a cab for part of the thing so he could win. (laughs) I know! Just trying to win, so why did I take a think about that next time? Maybe it's not a bad strategy. Uh, But all in an attempt to win at any cost. And Paul is saying no. Live a life worthy of your calling. Compete according to the rules, Um, play the game life in a way uh, that that is above board, Um, and keep the way you play the game of life counts. And then finally, he gives an agricultural um, analogy. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Paul says, work hard, just like the farmer works hard, work hard because there is a reward for that. Um, Not so much a reward in this life, but in the life to come. Uh, N.T. Wright says, beware the temptation to engage in the Christian life kind of like an absentee landlord expecting the benefits in heaven without having to do any of the hard work here on earth. And that's what he's saying. This reminds me of recently when Katie had one of those really ridiculous projects to do in class where they do a group project. Do you know these things? Do you have the children who end up doing the entire project? Yeah. I have one of those too. And I didn't actually do them as a teacher unless I absolutely had to because this is what happens. The good student does all the work and the lousy students get the good grade. Yeah, yeah, I know. It just drives me nuts. And she had a project. She came home crying and she said they literally, the other three people in the group, literally sat there talking with each other while I did the whole, whole thing. She came home and worked on it for a couple more hours and then turned it in for the four of them and then to, proceeded to tell the teacher, "Um, I did this whole thing which was good. I was glad she did. And that's what Paul's saying is don't do that. Don't be like those people who want to get benefits without working hard for them. Work hard. There will come a day when our works will be made known, um, when we stand before God. It will not affect our salvation. Our salvation is secure. But the Bible says it will have some impact on our reward. Uh, there's, a, there's a part... Um, I think it's in 1st or 2nd Corinthians, but I think everything's in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, where where he talks about uh, our works being burned, and what is gold and silver will last, and what is wood, stubble, and hay will be burned away. And he even talks about some will be saved as though through the fire, like just kind of skating skating in. Uh, and so, it, it, But that's about all it tells us. It doesn't tell us a whole lot more about what that means, that, that what we have done on earth has an impact on our reward uh, in heaven. So I'm not going to get into it further because... Scripture doesn't. And then Paul says, reflect on these things. Think about these things, Timothy. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So God will give you understanding on what I'm talking about as you are strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, as you pass on what you have learned to others, as you endure with single-minded purpose and obedience, and as you work hard all of which he is exhorting Timothy to do. And then because he has had these words about enduring and hardship and obedience, and none of which is like fun and light and, you know, candy, um, he's going to talk about why Timothy should endure hardship, the reasons for enduring hardship in verses 8 through 13. So beginning uh, with verses 8 through 10, he's going to go from these analogies to sort of history, to what has happened uh, in the past that will help him endure hardship. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. This isn't in my notes, but I find this so cool. That word for criminal is like common criminal, and it's the same word that's used for the two thieves that were crucified, on the two sides of Jesus. So Paul is saying, I've been chained like I'm one of those thieves, all because of the gospel. Therefore, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he begins by saying, look, as you're enduring this hardship, remember Jesus Christ. What encouragement that would have been to Timothy. The, the greatest encouragement Timothy can have, that any of us can have in enduring hardship, comes from remembering Jesus. And, and what he has been through, it is the greatest encouragement any of us can have in times of trial. A couple of my favorite verses are from Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. I have it open just in case I can't say it from memory. But it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such trials or such mistreatment from uh, ungodly men so that you will not grow weary and faint of heart. And so as we consider Jesus and what he has been through, that helps us when we are going through trials. And, And then Paul says, I am shamed like a common criminal, but God's word is not chained. I love that word picture. It cannot be held back. God's word cannot be stopped. Even in parts of the world now and in history where they have tried to suppress God's word, they can't do it. God's word is unchained and it will always remain. They, it cannot be contained no matter how the forces of evil try to do it. Do you find that reassuring? I find that so reassuring. And I'm sure it was a great encouragement both to Timothy and to Paul as well. And so he says, therefore, because God's word is not chained, because I know the final outcome of what will happen, I endure all of this for the sake of the elect. Um, I endure suffering for the sake of the elect, for those who are not yet saved. Now, what about election? Well, here's the deal. Election is the, is the theological stance that those who are saved have been chosen, have been predestined by God to be saved, and some are predestined and some are not. I'm not going to get into this now, and, and it's not because I'm ducking it, because as those of you who have been with me a while know, I've taught on this before, but it's not Paul's point here. Paul's point here is those who are yet to be saved, that there are unsaved people, and I endure hardship for them because I want them to be won over for Christ. I'll go through anything, to win them to Christ. So Paul's point isn't what does the elect mean, but his point is that he will endure everything so that more people might come to Christ. And he is encouraging Timothy to do the same. Um, There's a world out there that needs to know Jesus, that is dying apart from Christ. And what are we willing to do? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to suffer in order to reach them with the message of hope? that is in Christ Jesus, the gospel. And then he goes into a trustworthy saying, which was very likely a hymn of the early church. Uh, And he says this, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So the first part of this, where he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him, that's not a reference to martyrdom. That's not a reference to physical death. It's actually a picture of what we're talking about in in baptism, or what's being represented, symbolized in baptism, that we die to sin, that's the taking over, and and we are raised to newness of life. We are freed from sin. This is essentially the point Paul's making in Romans 6.11 when he says, in the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have died to sin. Sin no longer has uh, rule over us and will no longer uh, be counted against us uh, for eternity. Our eternal life has begun in him. So we have been raised to a new life, to an eternal life that begins when we trust Christ. Christ. We live with him, and he lives in us right now, and we will live with him forever. And then the second part of this, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is actually talking about heaven. This is saying, if we endure through this lifetime, uh, then we will reign with him. This is talking about the life to come, which theologians, this is actually not a Greek word, this is an English word. I know that's Kind of weird, but uh, eschatological, those things. Eschatology is the theology of what happens after life, the end of the world and beyond. And so this is an eschatological statement. The statement is saying if we endure um, through this life, then one day we will reign in heaven with him. He doesn't give particulars on what that means, uh, but he says we will be spending life eternal in heaven. And then what about this statement if we disown Him, he will uh, also disown us. That's serious stuff, and I'm I'm not trying to make light of it. uh, But that that word, more correctly, probably means if we deny him, or if we refuse him. It's very similar to what Jesus said in Mark eight and Luke nine: "If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven." Uh, And so we we must take seriously. Uh, this, this verse. But because I believe that the whole counsel of Scripture is that we are eternally secure in Christ, that salvation, if we are truly saved, we cannot be lost. Because here's the deal. I believe that's not only what Jesus teaches everywhere and what the New Testament teaches everywhere, but if there's something we can do to lose our salvation, then we have some control over our salvation. We, if there, there ought to then be something we can do to win our salvation. But there's nothing we can do to win our salvation. Our salvation has been won for us by Jesus on the cross. And so, therefore, there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. So, this to me must be talking about unbelievers who will deny Jesus, who denied Jesus on earth, and will deny Jesus in heaven uh, and so he will deny them as well. Uh, and so I think we need to take seriously that this will be the fate of many uh, of all of those people who have denied Jesus on earth. Uh, Francis Chan writes about uh, being in Starbucks and just looking at the guy making his latte and looking at the people over here having a discussion. And he was at, it was at the time that he was writing a book called Erasing Hell. And he said, you know what? If I really believe what I'm writing in this book, Is this person going to heaven or is he going to hell? And and, and how can I have an impact on that? What would God call me to do in this person's life? And so I, I think we need to take seriously what these verses are saying. And I believe we also need to take seriously the ways in which we are ashamed of the gospel and the times in which we are ashamed of the gospel. In a sense, denying not necessarily Christ, but what we believe. It won't cause us to go to hell. But certainly, it hurts the heart of our God. And then he says, this is kind of a twist, because you would think that he's just said, if you do not disown me, he'll disown you. If you disown him, he'll disown you. If we are faithless, and then he turns it around, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is who he is. Um, This is not the same as disowning. Now I believe he's... The hymn is talking about believers. That despite our best efforts, we will fail sometimes. We will fall. We will sin. But even in those times of faithlessness, Jesus will still remain faithful to us. He can be no other way because faithfulness is at the very core of his being. It is who he is. He is faithful. Now, what is he being faithful to? And, and this is where Dr. Liefeld writes, is it being faithful to his people? Is it being faithful to his own righteousness? Is it being faithful to his own judgments? And the answer to that is, of course, yes. All of the above. He is faithful. You know, I picture when I read this, the first readers of, of, this, um, of this letter, because they had very little access To outside encouragement and teaching. You know, we walk into a bookstore that, you know, you walk into parables and you've got, you know, thousands of square feet of help. And not to mention, we've got this, and most of us have multiple ones of this. And we can look many places and get hope and help for our lives. These people that first read this, what they what I've just read to you had to be a lifeline to them. They didn't have books. Most Jewish men had the Old Testament, the Old Testament committed to memory. They didn't have books, and so they committed it to memory. And so they they didn't have the lifeline of spiritual help that we have. And how meaningful this would have been to them uh, to read what Paul says here when he says, remember Jesus, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, Descended from David, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. How powerful that would have been for these people who didn't even have sermon notes from Paul's last sermon to turn to. It reminds me of believers in closed countries today that when they do get a Bible smuggled through, they can't afford to get caught with it. And so they rip it apart, and they hand out the pages. And you memorize this, and you memorize this, and you memorize this. And then they destroy them, and when they come together, who has First Corinthians 6? And the person who has it memorized says it. Be grateful. Be grateful for what we have and make the most of it. So then he goes back to false teachers. We're back on the false teacher track. Keep reminding them of these things. When, uh, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Now he says, keep reminding them. What are these things that he used to remind them of? Well, definitely it's the theological statement that's just been made in the hymn um, in the verses prior. But possibly he means, keep reminding them of all of these things that I'm telling you about. And then we learn one of the elements of the false teaching that was being taught at Ephesus. It was argumentative. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. So the false teachers enjoyed a good argument uh, or a bad argument, as the case may be, quarreling about minutia, about things that did not matter. It was without value It was pointless, it was worthless, and it ruined those who listened. Not only was it useless, but it actually did evil. It actually uh, caused evil to come among them. And then he's going to say, but that can't be you, Timothy. This is what you need to do. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Do your best. When when Paul says do your best, that word carries the idea of diligence. In fact, it even carries an idea of urgency, of of zeal. Do your best. Work really hard. This is is important stuff. Be urgent about it. Don't take it casually. And then he says, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Be more concerned about the approval of God than the approval of man. You live for an audience of one, Timothy. Be concerned about God's approval, so that you do not need to be ashamed. Now, what does he mean? Paul isn't saying ashamed of the gospel. He's saying so that you won't have to be ashamed of your work, of your ministry, when you stand before God, because you know you did your best. I promise you, Mary Shaw, that I wrote this in my book last summer. The first people I thought of about work was Nate and Aaron of Cornerstone Remodeling. They've done work for me. They've done work for my neighbors. And I even had my neighbors say, you've got to come see my deck. My deck is so beautiful. Come down and see my deck. Thank you for telling me about Nate and Aaron. Because when they get done with a job, they do a job like they were doing it for themselves. They want it done perfectly. It's good, honest work that they can be proud of and not ashamed. And so that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Work hard, do your best to win God's approval, so that when you stand before him, he can say, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, And then he says, rightly dividing, or as we have in the NIV, correctly handling the word of truth. Now, I had you look in the Old Testament And you probably wondered, where is that word in these verses? It's the part where it says to make straight. So when it talks about trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's the word here. And so some versions have said rightly dividing, cutting it straight, not deviating from the truth. And when the Greek Old Testament was written, that was the meaning of this word. But as words change, it came to mean more than just to cut straight. It came also to mean to, to handle something correctly or to have uh, correctness in what you are doing. And so that is why the NIV saying correctly handles the word of God. Either way, Paul is saying, make sure that you teach truth, true doc, dr, doctrine, that you correctly handle God's word, um, which is different from what the false teachers were doing and about whom Paul is writing, and he continues to talk about them in verses 16 through 18. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. And, um, among them are himenaeus and and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. I love the names in the Bible. Aren't they wonderful, Lindsay? I'm thinking Hymenaeus. Works for a boy or a girl, yeah. Uh, And he tells them, avoid godless chatter, which is similar to quarreling earlier. It is devoid of value, and it leads to more and more impiety, is the way the New Revised Standard Version puts it. We saw Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy. He was mentioned. Uh, He's still at it, obviously. Philetus, this is his 15 minutes of fame in the Bible. This is the only time he's seen. And we see another glimpse into what they're teaching. They're teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. And what Paul means by that is probably that they're saying that the resurrection isn't a physical resurrection that will take place at the end of time, but that it's a, a spiritual resurrection, Uh, And that is a horrific heresy. And here's why. And this is, if you want to read more on this, this is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. That it is really important that, that God intends one day to raise believers bodily. That we will have a resurrection body. And here's why. God intends to make everything that is wrong with this world Right. I don't know about you, but my body is one of those things that I want him to make right. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. Everything that is wrong with this world, he will completely reverse and destroy the effects of sin, even in our bodies. Uh, And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it, it says that he is the first fruits of those risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our proof positive that God will do this someday. It has not already taken place. It is not a spiritual resurrection. It is a physical, bodily resurrection that will take place at the end of time. And to deny that truth is to deny the gospel itself. Gary Habermas, who is a a theologian, um, says in the case for Easter, he says, Christianity without the resurrection isn't Christianity without its final uh, chapter. It isn't Christianity at all. The truth of the resurrection is a key, central doctrine, and it will happen that we will be raised. And such, such teaching as saying that it isn't going to happen or it's already happened ruins the faith of those who listen to it. It is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And then Paul says, nevertheless, even though they're teaching this, even though it's ruining the faith of some, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness, which are Old Testament uh, quotes there. So even though Hymenaeus, Philetus, and a long line of people before and after them have tried to cause the truth of God to stand, it won't work. They will never succeed because God's foundation is secure and it cannot be shaken. And he knows those sheep that belong to him. You can read that in John 10. And now we get to the household imagery that y'all wanted to know about. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Here's the analogy. In your house, you got different stuff that you use for different reasons. And some of it is ignoble. Some of it's used for jobs that we don't necessarily want to do and that we wouldn't use for anything else. So like maybe a pooper scooper. And they had, I mean, they didn't have running water. So they needed pooper scoopers for everything and everyone. Uh, And so that would be something that's ignoble. It's a utensil that is ignoble. But then we also have things that are noble, that we use for cooking and for lighting and for good uh, purposes. Here is the point Paul is making in these verses. He's saying, don't be ignoble like the false teachers. We might loosely translate that they are poopy. No. Commit yourself to what is noble, what is holy, what is right, so that you might be useful to God as a noble tool is useful in a household to its master. And then he ends with some personal advice to Timothy. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So now he's going to take this same analogy and he's going to basically say this is what it means to be noble. Flee immorality and pursue righteousness. And, and, And notice that word flee because that's a very... A uh, strong word. Don't flirt with it. Don't flirt with evil desires. Don't hang around the edges. Flee. Get out of there. Run. Like Joseph who wanted to get away from Potiphar's wife so bad, he left his clothes behind. He got out. He didn't say, let's talk about this proposal you're making. No. When I taught FCA, I got this question all the time. How far is too far? with my girlfriend or boyfriend. And my answer to that was, you're asking the wrong question. Because if you want to know how close to the edge can I get without sinning, you will fall off that edge. This is the question you should ask. How far away from sin can I get? Because you're always safer farther away. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Flee. But don't just flee. In fleeing, pursue something else. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Run after those things. Seek those things diligently. And they're arguing about, again, we're back to stupid arguments. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So again, he says, avoid stupid arguments. This is worse than the godless chatter. In fact, the word here is maybe paper mache I'm not sure. Mâché, something like that. But But what it means is battles, Uh, fought without weapons. And so these are word battles. These are angry arguments. And he says, stay away from them. They are destructive. As we learned in verse 14, they ruin people. You know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? It's a lie, isn't it? It is not true. Words are powerfully destructive. And so don't get involved in that. Um, be gentle, not only with believers. He's telling Timothy to be gentle with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Be gentle with them, because in your gentleness, you might win them to Christ. That If you're going to yell and scream at them and argue with them, no one's ever argued into the kingdom of God. They know we are Christians by our love, not by our carefully formed argument. I want to make sure you understand that Paul is not saying Timothy, because he's just told Timothy to be strong, to be, you know, be forceful. He's not telling Timothy to be passive. But he's saying, in your confrontation of these false teachers, be Christ-like. Be gentle. And that's powerful. It's a powerful apologetic for the gospel. Well, I want to end with some encouragement and some motivation for us as we endure hardship in our own lives. Now, I believe that Paul, and most of the New Testament, when it talks about trials and hardship, is mostly talking about persecution. And we don't really face that uh, in our lives. And I think sometimes when we uh, talk about ways that people have been upset at us for being Christians, we almost trivialize what Paul went through, being stoned and hit with rods and imprisoned and, you know, the hardship that he endured. But I also believe that the teaching contained in, in this passage and in many other passages uh, is applicable to a wide breadth of hardships, of trials, of difficulties. And we do go through those things. Last week, there was a, at this time, there was a memorial service going on in our sanctuary. Three kids lost their dad. The youngest is the age of my daughter. I think that's going to affect his life for the rest of his life. My, my, one of my dearest friends and our senior pastor lost their 35-year-old son. That is a true difficulty. That is a true hardship. We all go through disease and, and deep disappointments and the grief of a prodigal child. They are all hardships that are part of this life. And the truth is that sometimes, ladies, life just stinks. Uh, and we need have some encouragement. So I want to encourage you, not with my words, I want to encourage you with Paul's words, straight from the mouth of, of Paul. You then, my children, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the grace that only Jesus can give us. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And finally, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Ladies, a day is coming when God will make every wrong right. And and it is a day when we will stand before him And we will not need to be ashamed because we will be counted as his. It is a day that John tells us we will see Jesus just as he is and we will be just like him. The author of Hebrews also tells us that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, an anchor in a world that wants to rip us apart with trial and difficulty. But ultimately, it cannot do that because we have an anchor We have hope, all because of, and only because of, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the hope that is the anchor of our soul. That this world, though it is dark, you are still in control. And you are still working miracles. And you are still changing lives. And one day, Father, one day, you will make everything right. Thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We have two more weeks after this, so I'll see you next week.